greatest proponent of forgiveness in the history of the world. Uh, other religions have ideas of pity and looking at things through other, another person's perspective, but no one has encouraged or set forth forgiveness like Jesus. So we looked at his story of a king and a servant, this amazing story of forgiveness and bitterness. We saw that Jesus was showing us what forgiveness is. And just a quick recap. First, we saw that forgiveness is recognizing that there is a debt. It's not excusing. It's not throwing other things under the rug. It's recognizing there is a debt. Something wrong has happened. And secondly, it means letting go of revenge. This internal, I will not hold on to this bitterness, this desire to seek their loss. I will let go of revenge. And thirdly, it means restoring the relationship as possible. Not always possible to bring that back, but as you are able, restore that relationship. But as Jesus is telling the story, it wasn't just about describing what forgiveness is. The real heart of this story that Jesus told in Matthew 18 is about highlighting, (laughs) hear me, our need for forgiveness. Just what a great debt we have. In the beginning of the story, if you remember, Jesus says this king brings in a servant and he tells the servant, you have a debt of 10,000 talents. It's not a measurement we use in our day, but we heard how one talent was worth 20 years wages. 20 years of work, that's one talent. And this servant had somehow put together a debt of 10,000 talents talents. This is nearly the largest number Jesus could throw out to his crowd. It was supposed to be mind-blowing beyond their imagination. How could anyone get that large of a debt? Lifetimes. And Jesus's message to us is this is our debt to God. We owe far more than we could even imagine. It is beyond us. Honestly, when I sit in this, when I hear this teaching from Jesus, my first reaction is a little bit, is this true? Is is our debt actually this big? You've got to sit in this with me. And I know in our modern world, this is quick in our hearts. Do we really have this large of a debt? 10,000 talents, lifetimes worth that we could never pay back? If there is one teaching in Christianity that's highly off-putting, to our modern world today, and let's be honest, to all cultures that have gone before us, it's this teaching from scripture about our sin. It's this teaching about our great debt. Nothing is more grating to our culture right now than hearing that you're a sinner. It's not a popular message. And to be honest with you, there's a lot of people that have walked away from church because they feel like churches are just a place where you get beat up, that you're not good enough, you're awful, it's a place of shame and guilt, so you're going to come in here and hear this message about all your sin and how terrible you are, and people feel that Christianity and this teaching on sin is stifling, and it's repressive, and it's unhealthy. What do we say to this? Is this true? Is this the heart of Jesus and his teaching about this massive debt that we owe? So before we get into our great need for forgiveness, I just want to peel this back briefly with you and and look at maybe why what Jesus is saying here is instead meant to be life-giving and healthy and good for our hearts. So maybe just a glimpse into this. There's been a lot of psychological studies done in recent decades that has deeply proven uh, that we have a self-serving bias 
that we love to put ourselves in a good light. And one of my favorite authors on this is Thaddeus Williams, and he drew out this study that I, you might have heard me share this before. It always blows my mind. But there's this study done on high school students in Texas, and they asked 829,000 students. That's a lot. 829,000 students. How they compared to their fellow student uh, in getting along with other people. So were they below average? average or above average in getting along with their peers. Stunningly, all 829,000 students, every single one, not a single student missed, they all said, I'm above average, right? Every single student thought they did a better job getting along with their peers than anybody else around them, right? They did an above average job. Nobody said they were even average. When I heard this, I was like, really? Did this study, was it done correctly? But 829,000 students out of 829,000 students all said they were above average. You know, some of them had to be wrong. Or again, another example of self-serving bias. They did a study of patients in a hospital who had just been hospitalized because of a car accident they had caused. So they've been in a car accident, they caused it. And they asked these people about their driving ability. And again, are they below average, average, or above average? And a majority of patients who were in the hospital for an accident they caused still rated themselves as above average. They still gave themselves the best ranking, even though they're in a place that should prove otherwise. And a study after study after study shows we have an amazing ability to deceive ourselves to put ourselves in the best light, this self-serving bias. And critically, often this bias comes about our goodness. Hear me, our moral goodness. As we compare ourselves with other people, we have a tendency to overestimate our moral goodness, how good we are. But on the other hand, we also tend to underestimate our value and our worth. Really interesting article by a New York Times writer named Matt Richtel. And he has dubbed this recent mental health crisis the inner pandemic. And Matt Richtel, this, again, not a Christian, New York Times writer, he, he draws out how over the last 30 years there's been a shift. Where 30 years ago, for teens and young adults specifically, the greatest risks to them were external risks. So binge drinking, drunk driving, uh, premarital sex, you have drug use. All of these things were the greatest external threats to youth. And this is where all the commercials, advertisements went to address these external issues. But over the last 20 years, we've seen a shift. Those have declined. We've seen a great increase in internal risks to students. Matt Richtel draws out that major depression is up 60%. With it, suicide is up 60%. Anxiety Loneliness, self-harm. So Matt Richtel draws out there's many complex causes for this. It's not simple. Why is this happening? These external risks going down, but internal risks, this internal pandemic is wrecking people's lives. And I know this hits all too close to home for many of you in this room. And it's complex, but one thing that Matt Richtel draws out is the use of technology in our world today. That phones that have been meant to connect us more with one another have actually separated us from one another. We have fewer close relationships, and on top of that, we're always able to see through social media people in their best moments, 
the best version of themselves. And there's this comparison then that happens that we see how better they're doing at this, how they're succeeding in their fame, and people begin to feel terrible about themselves. Critically, hear me, this is not about their moral goodness. It's very rarely that people feel that they're not doing things right enough, that they're not a good person. It's they feel like they don't have value. They themselves are worthless. So it's not that they're not good. It's that they don't feel like they're good for anything. Do you see that difference? So we are overestimating our moral goodness on the one hand, but on the other, we're massively underestimating our worth and our value. So it's no surprise that this teaching about sin is really off-putting to our culture. One, we feel like we're good. (laughs) And and secondly, it seems like a message to denigrate people. Why it's so off-putting? But hear me, Jesus' teaching heals this in us, in I think a profound way. And I want to walk through three stories from Luke chapter 5. I encourage you to open up your Bibles with me if you have them. I won't have these texts on the screen. I'm simply going to walk through these stories. But Luke chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 12 through 16. And I see what Jesus' teaching speaks into this challenge in our moment right now in our culture. So Luke chapter 5, verse 12. The story begins, there's Jesus in a town. And a man with leprosy comes up to Jesus. And this is highly unusual because if you had a skin disease like leprosy, you were not supposed to be around other people. This was contagious. You were meant to be isolated and away from others, living outside of towns. And so you're not supposed to be near anyone. It's a never-ending quarantine. That's what you're supposed to be in. You can't be around other people. So unless you've gone to the priests, your skin has been healed, you've gone and they've confirmed the priests that yes, you are healthy, only then could you rejoin family. Only then could you be back around friends. But until then, you had to be isolated and alone. And whenever you got near people, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean, so that they would know not to come near you and not to be near your contagious skin disease. But in this man's desperation, hearing about Jesus and who he is, he comes into town, finds Jesus, and he gets down on his face before him and begins to beg. And he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And beautifully, before Jesus says a word, before he does anything else, he first reaches out and he touches the man. You have to sit in this with me. And this man with an unclean skin disease, this man who probably hadn't received affection like this in who knows, months, years, who hadn't been hugged or received affirmation like this, this man who's ashamed of his skin condition, supposed to stay away from others, shout unclean, unclean, Jesus knowingly reaches out and touches him in his uncleanness. How do you think, just question this with me, how do you think that man felt in that moment? I'm sure some shock and surprise that Jesus would have the audacity to touch him in his uncleanness, but do you think this man felt loved? Do you think this man was amazed at Jesus' compassion? What do you think he felt in this moment? And consider with me, Perhaps, what if this man did not have this skin disease? What if he wasn't unclean? 
and he just happened to be going through town, and Jesus bumped into him or just touched his arm in a normal way, how would the man feel then? I'm guessing he would not have been so amazed at Jesus' compassion or his kindness. So sit in this with me. That Jesus' compassion to us in our uncleanness reveals how greatly we are loved. It's precisely in this moment of him being unclean and unworthy and disconnected and isolated that Jesus shows up to show compassion to him. That's what's so amazing and life-changing for this man. We need to sit in this, especially in our objection to Christianity and seeing its teaching on sin that can be so off-putting to people. That really what Jesus is showing us here is that Christianity is not trying to teach us about sin so that we could wallow in despair and feel terrible about ourselves. That's not the purpose of Christianity's teaching on sin. Rather, it's meant to be a context for us to be amazed at the love of God. That's the goal of Jesus' teaching on sin. One, so we'd see the truth and reality of who we are, but not stop there. We'd see his great compassion and pursuit and love towards us. This is why Scripture is so brutally honest about the reality of our hearts. It doesn't want us to be deceived, but neither does it want us to miss out on the context for God's great love towards you and I. Do you see this? So sit in this with me. If you are feeling the weight of your unworthiness, if you're sitting here this morning and talking about your sin is not hypothetical, but you grieve that and feel the weight of it deeply, be encouraged that you have a Savior that is seeking to meet you right in the midst of your unworthiness. He wants to meet you there with his compassion. Transform you, heal you there. And if you're a bit like me, maybe numb to the uncleanness of your heart, the sin in your life, just stay with me. Let's see how scripture lovingly unpacks and wants our eyes to see this more clearly. So go with me to our second story. It's in Luke chapter 5 again, the very next passage, 17 through 26. I think Luke is showing us something here from story to story to story. It says Jesus is in a house And there's Pharisees and teachers of the law, religious leaders who do not get along with Jesus, who are also there in this home listening to Jesus and his teaching. It's a packed house. People want to hear from Jesus. It says that some men, they come carrying a friend of theirs on a mat because their friend is paralyzed. And they're trying to bring him into Jesus because they know he's a healer. Yet when they get to the door, they can't get in because the house is so full of people. So they're not discouraged. They're not set back. Instead, they take their friend on the mat up onto the roof of the home. And they begin to peel back the tiles up there on the roof, create a hole large enough to lower their friend down through the roof right in front of Jesus who's teaching in this house. And as this paralyzed man comes down through the ceiling right in front of Jesus, he looks at the paralyzed man and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now the religious leaders, Pharisees, they are shocked by this because it's a clear claim to be God who can forgive sins but God alone. I'd love to explore that more this morning the response of the culture of this day, but I think there's something shocking to 
our culture about this statement from Jesus. That here's this paralyzed man, clearly in deep need, and his friends brought him all the way to Jesus, clearly because they want him to be healed. That's the goal here. So as he's lowered through the ceiling directly in front of Jesus, and as he says, friend, your sins are forgiven, that's not what they came for, is it? That's not what they thought was the greatest need, but Jesus sees this differently. He knows that our greatest need, this paralyzed man's greatest need, is not physical. He knows that it's our spiritual brokenness and sin. So Jesus knows Sir, your greatest friend, your greatest need, your greatest challenge is not your paralysis, it is your sin. And that's my priority. I will start there. He knows that the severity of his condition is really his heart and not his body. Do you see this? Shocking to us. Why don't we see this like Jesus? Why don't we see this as the greatest, most pressing, severe need in our lives? Why does he see this and we don't? I'm going to quickly walk through a couple reasons for us here this morning. I think the first reason this does not stand out as our greatest need to ourselves, if we're being honest, is first of all, we make the wrong comparison. We make the wrong comparison. Often when we're trying to assess our goodness, as we looked at before with the self-serving bias, we look at one another for how we're doing, right? Uh, So this person might be full of greed, Uh, but at least I'm not impatient like them, right? Or I I might be impatient, but at least I'm not full of greed like this other person nearby me. We can compare one another in the faults and their weaknesses and land ourselves in the best category. This is foolishness, not just for looking at each other's weaknesses, but we are comparing ourselves to one another rather than to God. We're, We're comparing sin to sin, darkness to darkness rather than to light. And if we'd see ourselves in relation to who God is in his holiness, it would be an entirely different story. For instance, I think Isaiah the prophet had a pretty good sense of his own goodness and righteousness. That is, until this day, he had a vision. The veil's torn back and his heart sees God seated high up on his throne. And his robe is filling the temple. He sees God in his glory and his majesty. And Isaiah hears these angelic beings crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And in this moment, when Isaiah is seeing God's holiness and God's greatness and the worthy worship of these angelic beings, he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He realizes all my great words that I thought were so good, they're nothing now that I see this worship. And all my comparison to the people around me, they also have unclean lips. And woe is me because I see the Lord Almighty and it's entirely different than I thought. All my comparisons have been absolute foolishness now that I see the one that really matters. So our darkness to darkness will always fool us. It will always blind us. But to have the comparison to God and his holiness is a different view entirely. So you will not really appreciate and I will not really appreciate the uncleanness of my own heart until I see the holiness of God. Until that is a gift from him, let me show you who I am so that you can have a better taste of who you are. 
Another way, you will never really have a, an appreciation of the touch of Jesus towards you unless you really see your uncleanness. So we make the wrong comparison. Secondly here, though, it's not just a wrong comparison, but we also highlight and focus on our external actions rather than our internal motives. It's not we're not aware of them, but that's not what we judge most of the time, <laughs> although we want to do that towards other people. So we're always looking at our external actions for our goodness and wrongness rather than our internal motives and reasons. But here Jesus is teaching from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus goes on to describe in greater detail the law and the real teaching behind this of what is required. And he says this in Matthew chapter 5, 21 and 22. You've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. We want to make murder merely an outward action. But Jesus highlights that when you have a bitterness and anger, when you play in your mind someone's demise over and over again and nurse this bitterness, you are murdering them in your heart. And that, too, brings judgment. You see how he takes it deeper. Or again, in Matthew 27, uh, chapter 5, verse 27, you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, again, it's not just this external action, but deeper what's going on in your heart, in your motives. This is where our sin comes from. And Jesus is wise enough to point out that it's not just the fruit and the leaves of what we can see externally, but the disease of our heart goes deep down into the very roots of who we are. It's connected into our very nature. So this is brutal, but it's what Scripture teaches, that our outward actions aren't coming from nowhere, that our wrong deeds are grounded in coming from a wrong nature in us. We do wrong things because we love wrong things because we have a nature and a heart that's bent and twisted in upon itself. That's why we're stuck in these unhealthy habits and wrong rhythms is because we love wrong things. There's something gone bent and twisted in our hearts. This is why Jeremiah 17 says this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is desperately sick, Jesus is saying. Often when I hear this kind of teaching too, my initial response is, yes, 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 I know I've heard these things before, but like people are pretty good though. <laughs> we, we do good things in our lives. People do great things towards one another. What do we say about that? Scripture knows this. Scripture knows that we've been created in God's image with the capacity to care for people, to love, to have compassion towards our kids and our spouses. Scripture knows that we're made in his image and so can do good things, but I also love how Scripture pulls back that even these good things we do can often come from unhealthy, selfish motives, if we're honest. And that here again, Jesus so lovingly tells us that beware of when you do good things, about how you subtly try to do that for other people's praise so that you might be noticed and lifted up. So he says, when you give, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. That even to ourselves, we can give ourselves a great round of applause in our own hearts when we do great things, right? Like just an inner celebration about our own goodness. Jesus is saying you can do this for yourself 
and for those around you so that you would get applause just to earn favor from other people, but you have received your reward in full. Don't our hearts know this? This gets me. The number of things that I might do in life that I feel are so good, but really why? What's the motive deeper down there for my love towards you all, towards other people? How much of that's truly self-serving? So Jesus is showing us that our hearts are desperately sick pulling back the context for our hearts to see his love and his compassion. I want to end here, though. (laughs) There's a place for us to see our hope and God's healing that he desires to bring us. What kind of freedom can we find? Here's this third story that comes in Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 5, story about Levi, a tax collector. He's in his booth collecting taxes. It's a way for him to cooperate with the Romans in order to oppress his own people. And the way tax collectors made their living is they didn't just take the necessary amount in taxes, they would add a little bit more of a percentage for their own pocket. So they were constantly robbing their own people and their neighbors. Hated, hated for this. Yet Jesus comes up to Levi while he's in his tax collector's booth and Jesus says, come, follow me. Follow me. Levi, hearing this call, immediately gets up, leaves everything behind, and follows Jesus. I love it. And then he goes, and he throws a great banquet, a whole huge party for Jesus, and all these other tax collectors and sinners get together to have a feast and to celebrate. And Jesus and his disciples are there with them. But once again, the religious leaders are thrown off by Jesus' compassion. And they say, what are you doing here? Why would you eat and drink with these sinners? And Jesus says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he clarifies, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. He has come for people who see their brokenness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Take this with me very briefly before we take communion here together, that Jesus is meeting Levi once yet again in his place of sin. And it's there that he is calling him to follow him. Jesus doesn't come up to Levi and say, hey, if you actually live a better life for six months here, if you become a leader in the synagogue and you start shaping up your life a bit more, maybe you can be good enough to become one of my followers. Then I'll be interested in you because you've proven yourself. That's not what Jesus does. He meets Levi when he's unworthy. He meets Levi while he's sitting in the place of his sin and rebellion. That's where Jesus calls him. You follow me now, Levi, out of this place. I'm not looking for you to clean yourself up first. I'm looking for you to look to me for your cleanness, for you to look to me for forgiveness. And that's the same thing he does with the leper. No, I'm looking to heal you now, to touch you now while you're unclean. That's when I'm establishing relationship with you. That's when I'm seeking you out. So it's not a place for us to come here and say, let's be good church people so that eventually God will like us, that maybe I can be good enough to earn his favor. No, we all must stand on this ground of grace. God, I want to come to you and seek your favor that the only way I can know you is not because I'm good enough, because I see I am massively, massively indebted. And there's no way I could ever pay this. But Jesus, 
you are offering me healing. Jesus, you are offering me as a free gift, this grace, a righteousness that's not my own. So that I, who am the worst of sinners, can now call myself a righteous one and a saint. Why? Because my life is suddenly so much better? No. (laughs) Because Jesus has given this to me freely. Do you see the beauty of the gospel here? You see why this is a powerful message for people who are in the midst of brokenness? If you call yourself healthy, if you call yourself righteous, this is not a blessed message. It's actually offensive. But if you count yourself lost, if you count yourself deeply in debt, if you're desperate because you feel the sickness of your heart, this is a beautiful message. That Jesus is seeking you out and is offering you life by his grace. By his grace. There's more, though, here. He's not looking for Levi to stay in the same place, is he? He's saying, I've come to call the sinners to repentance. And so he wants Levi to get up out of his tax collector's booth and to follow him. He's not saying, hey, Levi, here's forgiveness. Now stay in your booth. Stay in your lost life. Continue in the same ways that you were. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance and repentance into transformation. So if you're feeling the weight of sin and maybe a taste of the sweetness of Jesus' grace, don't stay where you are. Let that transform your life. Say, okay, I'm not staying in my tax collector's booth. I'm not going to remain in this place of sin. I want to follow you, Jesus. He's looking for us to say, I value knowing you, Jesus, more than anything else in my life. That's why Levi left everything to follow him. You're the great prize. You're the pearl of great price. You're the buried treasure that I would sell everything else to have. This is Jesus. So all my broken ways, yes, I will leave them behind. All the sin that's never satisfied my heart, yes, I will leave that behind. Just let me have Jesus This is repentance. This is what that heart-seeking forgiveness sounds like. So see that he's seeking you and calling you right now. And seek that he's calling you to leave behind what's always been empty to find life in him. I'm going to call the band back up. Let's sit and worship more. But we're also going to be taking communion this morning. We have uh, Jim and Sue and Darren and Barb who are going to be serving that for us. And they're going to be up here in the front of these aisles. If you're not familiar with taking communion in this way, um, there'll be a bowl of bread and a cup of juice. And we ask if you are a follower of Jesus, do you have said, yes, I'm leaving behind my sin. It's not that I'm perfect. It's that I count Jesus more worthy than anything else in my life. And I'm resting on his grace, not my own life and works. If that's true of you, we invite you to take communion with us. And again, you're just going to take a piece of that bread and you're going to dip it in the juice and then you can feel free to walk back to your seat with it or you can eat it right away. And as you take that bread, you're going to hear them say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And as you dip it in the juice, you're going to hear them say, the blood of Christ poured out for you. This is a way for us to taste and eat the gospel. This message of this is where we find life, not in ourselves, but in Christ's death, his body broken, and his blood poured out for us. This is the place of grace.
So as you come up here this morning, I hope this is a response for your heart saying, I'm, I'm leaving <laughs> the things that are empty, and I'm going to the one who is life for me. I'm getting up in repentance and coming to find forgiveness in Jesus. So would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we long for our hearts to truly be amazed at you. I know, Lord, in the way that you have created your gospel in this transformation, a lot of that journey needs to begin with humility and recognizing that we're sick and that we're sinners in need of repentance and forgiveness. And Lord, there's a measure of being uncomfortable in this. God, but I pray that you would give us the grace to really grapple with the neediness of our hearts this morning. And Lord, you'd begin that by helping us see your holiness. So even, Lord, right now, as these people are sitting here, would you just breathe your life by your spirit, a taste of your holiness to our hearts? Again, I ask that in your name, Jesus. see your holiness right now, but Lord, would you also help us take in your kindness and your grace. So show us your holiness, but also, Lord, show us your kindness and your grace, that you're calling us right where we are right now.